Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. At the end of this story, when we look back on everything we've learned about Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, I want you to think about their story. How do you feel about their crimes, their accomplishments, the bloodshed, the drugs? Because if you ask me, and I'm going to pretend like you did, you've really got to admire what the pair of them accomplished. Sure, their empires were built entirely from criminal activities, but they were still empires, thriving, successful businesses in worlds that were even more male-dominated than they are today. But if you can't get past the crime of it all, I'm not going to hold it against you. Besides, even if you don't love what Kate and Tilly did or who they were, you can't deny it's still one hell of a ride. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This is the third and final episode of Sex, Drugs, and Slygrog, Sydney's Razor Wars. So far, we've met Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, two vice queens who rose to power in Sydney's 1920s criminal underworld. But today, everything comes to a head. The Slygrog, the cocaine, the brothels, the razors. All of it boils over into a roiling, noxious atmosphere that sees the streets of Sydney run red with blood. But who will be the last woman left standing? Stay with us and find out. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Before we get into the Razor Wars, let's review Sydney's criminal elements. Of course, there was Kate Lee, who built her sly grog empire. Her success in the cocaine trade had also earned her the name the Snow Queen. 
But to those who visited her illegal after-hours pubs, she was just mum, which felt fitting the closer Kate got to the big 5-0. Then there was English transplant Tilly Devine, Sydney's most successful madam. She owned and operated at least 18 brothels, and her 'er ne'er-do-well husband, Big Jim, made a killing selling her girls cocaine. They were the city's reigning underworld queens, having each built their thrones from the humblest of humble beginnings. But they weren't alone up there. Sydney had many lawless gangs running around the streets, each claiming ownership over a piece of the city's inner suburbs. Kate, for example, was well known in Surrey Hills. Tilly's brothels were mostly in Darlinghurst, King's Cross, and Woolloomooloo. But they didn't cover all of the city's territory, nor did they cater to all of Sydney Cider's vices. And here's where we're going to introduce a man into this story of female criminals. Two, actually. The first is Phil Jeffs, who made his name and his money in Slygrog, cocaine, and gambling in King's Cross and Woolloomooloo. Together, Kate, Tilly, and Jeffs were sort of an unofficial triumvirate, holding most of the cards and maintaining a strange peace throughout the city. But there was another man who wanted some of that power and dubious prestige for himself. His name was Norman Brune. And despite his ambition, he didn't really bring anything to the party. All he did was run a gang of standover men that terrorized small-time crooks throughout Darlinghurst and King's Cross. That said, Brune did contribute one vital piece of this particular puzzle. He was the one who made straight-edge razors the weapon of choice for Sydney's criminal element. After guns were basically outlawed in early 1927, he insisted that members of his gang carry cutthroat razors with them at all times, making it their signature. They'd stalk their prey, sex workers, drug dealers, illegal bookies, and threaten them with the blades unless they paid up. Crucially, Brune's men only moved in on freelancers, anyone not protected by Kate, Tilly, or Jeffs. And that was fairly standard across the board. For the most part, none of the trio's gangs crossed the turf lines. But that all changed when Brune decided that he should be Sydney's top crime boss. He and his gang of thugs hit establishments and allies of the ruling gangs, and they were out for blood. After a shaky start, Brune's attacks caused big waves. Not only were they taking profits right out of pockets, they affected business in general. Customers were reluctant to show up when word got out that the original Razor Gang was making the rounds. So the ruling trio armed their men with razors of their own. But it wasn't enough to just fight back. Brune had to be stopped, and someone set out to do just that. Now, what happened next is, to this day, largely a mystery. But around 10.30 p.m. on June 22, 1927, Brune's wife, Irene, awoke to the sound of gunshots outside their Darlinghurst home. At first, she thought it was just a taxi backfiring, but eventually, someone arrived on her doorstep with the truth. Brune had been shot. Norman Brune died in the early hours of June 23rd, his wife by his side. Irene later told reporters that in his dying moments, he whispered the name of his killer to her, but she said she'd never repeat it. This was typical of the time. The criminal community stayed mum when it came to dealing with the police. 
it seems everyone preferred to handle justice on their own terms. It's entirely possible that Brune's murder was an example of that street justice, though we'll never know for certain. Did one of the ruling trio order the hit? Or perhaps it was just some gangster with an ax to grind? Unfortunately, that's not an answer you'll get today. What I can tell you is that Brune's death did little to quell the storm brewing in Sydney's gang community. Sure, his crew fell apart without him, but he left his mark on the city. Over the next few months, more and more criminals across Sydney picked up razors as their new weapon of choice. And though there was a kind of uneasy truce between the three biggest gangs in the city, there was still a problem. Kate Lee and Tilly Devine hated each other. They were the only female crime bosses in Sydney. And though their enterprises didn't overlap much, they wanted to outdo each other. With their clothes, their power, the fear they caused, even with the newspaper headlines they earned. Before we continue with the psychology for this episode, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we've done a lot of research for this show. With so many more pressing things at hand, it might seem odd for Kate and Tilly to be so focused on each other's image and reputation, but it's actually fairly typical behavior. As Dr. Alex Lickerman writes, our reputation represents the way others look at us and, as such, is at once critically important and utterly trivial. Lickerman explains that people with lower self-esteem may focus on their reputation as a way to feel good about themselves. However, those with a more robust self-esteem understand that reputation is important to many aspects of life, friendships, romance, and business dealings. So whether they wanted to bask in the glow of society's admiration or just shore up their empire, Kate and Tilly clamored to be the undisputed queen. Perhaps no story better encapsulates their relationship than this one from a policewoman known by the pseudonym Maggie Baker. One of Sydney's first women on the force, Baker was assigned to surveil both Kate and Tilly, and the latter took particular umbrage with that idea. One day, Baker ran into Tilly on the corner of Palmer Street, and the madam flew into a rage. She blocked the copper's path and started shaking her while yelling, you're not coming down this bloody street. At that very moment, Kate Lee jumped off a passing tram wearing her signature giant black hat and marched towards the two women. Without saying a word, she king hit Tilly, knocking her to the ground. Then she sat on her. As Kate was somewhat larger than Tilly, the furious younger woman wasn't going anywhere. From atop her rival, Kate looked up at Baker and said, Go and do what you gotta do, love. I'll be here when you come back. Her face curled into a snarl as she spat back to Tilly, The next time you declare her on, I'll give you a second helping. Needless to say, the incident didn't endear the women to each other, and their animosity spilled into their respective gangs. Kate sent her men to slash Tilly's girls, and Tilly's men did the same to Kate's cocaine pushers. Kate trashed Tilly's brothels. Tilly stormed Kate's sly groggeries. It was a mess. And locals came up with a nickname for the inner city suburbs, Razorhurst. They knew that if you weren't careful, or were just plain unlucky, you could be held up by a blade-wielding thug double-crossed by an armed sex worker, or caught in the crossfire inside a sly grog shop, and the media only fed the terror. 
In January of 1928, tabloid rag Truth announced that Razor Mania had overtaken Sydney. There was a, quote, carnival of bloodletting, which made it impossible for decent citizens to walk the streets without fear of sudden and terrible attack. Things got so bad that by September, Parliament passed a new bill. Anyone found carrying a razor without a justifiable reason could receive a six-month jail term. It echoed the law against firearms that made razors so popular in the first place, but I don't know if anyone appreciated the irony at the time. They were too preoccupied anyhow, because now it seemed like just about everyone was picking up a razor. In February of 1929, Charles Wilson used a razor to murder his lover, then died by suicide. The next month, 26-year-old Hazel Sly was slashed to death by her estranged husband, who then also died by suicide. Days later, May de Pena was rushed to hospital in desperate need of stitches after her husband slashed her. Around the same time that Sydney's husbands started slashing their wives, Kate and several of her gang were arrested, but not for razoring. What were they up to this time, you ask? Well, according to court records, Kate was getting a little greedy and more than a little mischievous. She reportedly lured men to her sly groggeries with the usual promises of top-shelf drink. And to be fair, she did serve them the good stuff. It's just that she drugged it, too. When her customers passed out, she'd rob them and have her henchmen dump their unconscious forms in nearby alleys. Despite the evidence against her, Kate insisted that she was innocent. In court, she declared, no one can say I'm a woman of ill fame. Never mind that she had close to 60 criminal convictions by that stage. And she got another one that day. She was found guilty and sentenced to four months behind bars. While Kate cooled her heels, another shakeup changed Sydney's criminal scene for good. Fellow crime lord Phil Jeffs was found on his front lawn, shot in his shoulder and chest. He was rushed to the hospital and made a full recovery, but the incident rattled him, understandably. Jeffs was so shaken, he left the city, all but abandoning his post as one of Sydney's leading gangsters. That just left two people in the top slots, Kate Lee and Tilly Devine. But was one less troublemaker enough to calm the harbor city? Could Kate and Tilly exist peacefully alongside each other? Not on your life. Coming up, a shootout, an exile, and letters to the editor. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday only on Spotify.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. All right, I know we've already heard about two men in this story about women, but that's only because they're important. Bear with me while we meet another one. This guy's name is Frank Green, and he was a real piece of work. Because this isn't his story, we won't get too bogged down in the details. But suffice it to say that Green was a particularly violent associate of Tilly Devine and Big Jim. In July of 1929, Green was shot by one of Kate Lee's men, Gregory Gaffney. After the attack, Tilly and Jim brought Green to their cottage in Marubra, where he could lay low. But word spread that Gaffney wasn't satisfied with just wounding Green. He wanted him dead. And he had his sights set on Big Jim, too. When Gaffney eventually showed up at the Divine's garden fence, pistol in hand and screaming for Green's blood, Jim warned him not to come any closer. He had a loaded rifle right there. But Gaffney started climbing over the gate anyway, inviting Jim to shoot. So, of course, Jim opened fire, and before the sun rose the next morning, Gregory Gaffney lay dead in a nearby hospital. It only encouraged more violence. Just weeks later, things boiled over in the Kellett Street riot. On the afternoon of August 8th, some of Tilly's guys rolled into Kellett Street and King's Cross, which was firmly Kate's territory. There, as they hoped, they came across a number of Kate's boys, and the two gangs spent a few stimulating hours yelling at each other and snorting from their private stashes of cocaine. By 10 p.m., the locals had had enough, tired of hearing bottles breaking and the gangsters swearing violence on each other. So one Kellett Street resident stuck his head out the window and told the men to get over it and go home. United in this one thing, the two gangs of no-hopers pegged empty beer bottles at the man. He didn't like that, so he pulled out a pistol and fired a warning shot over the riled-up crowd, which obviously didn't help. The gangsters returned fire, and suddenly it was on. High, drunk, and frustrated, the 40-some men erupted into violence. Fists, bottles, rocks, and guns did their fair share of violence that night. But it was the razors that left a real impression. A group of Tilly's men cornered Bruce Higgs, Kate's personal chauffeur. Two of them held him down, while others slashed at his face, arms, and hands. But he lived. A dozen or so others were badly wounded in the brawl, but Higgs copped the worst of it. And no one ever named their attackers. The coat of silence was ironclad. And it was all for nothing. No side emerged victorious. Nothing had changed. But in the days following the riot, rumor had it that Kate had offered two of her men thousands of pounds to kill Big Jim and Frank Green payback for Gaffney's death, apparently, even though technically Gaffney had started it. Look, I know it didn't really make sense, but Kate's strong suit was crime, not logic, as was Frank Green's for that matter. 
In his mind, it was kill or be killed. So on November 9th, he set out to find his would-be assassins. He and Big Jim cornered Barney Dalton and Wally Tomlinson, the two supposed hitmen. Green shot Dalton, killing him, then punctured Tomlinson's lung with another shot. After Green and Big Jim fled, Tomlinson was rushed to the hospital. With such a bloody wound, he thought he was dying. And so, with what he believed to be one of his last breaths, he named his attackers. It was unheard of. Nobody talked to the cops. But armed with Tomlinson's testimony, the cops nabbed Big Jim and Green and brought them in for questioning. By the following January, the case had made its way to the coroner's court. And that's when the real fun started. You see, Tomlinson had survived, which meant he was called on to testify. He knew doing that could only bring him trouble, so he changed his story. On the stand, Tomlinson announced that Big Jim Devine hadn't been there the night he was shot. So, much to Tilly's delight, her husband was off the hook. But Wally Tomlinson was still in hot water. After all, he'd broken the code of silence. He was a marked man. Everyone in Sydney knew the guy was in trouble. Even Truth, the tabloid paper, published an article about how Tomlinson was sure to be killed before long. Now, you might be wondering where Kate Lee is in all of this. Great question. By this time, she'd been released from Long Bay Jail, and some people suspected that she was hiding Tomlinson. Obviously, she'd want to keep her man safe from anyone who wanted to take him out. So with that hunch in mind, a gang of upstart young thugs started terrorizing 49-year-old Kate at her Surrey Hills home. Now, it's not clear whether these men were under the employ of Tilly Devine, or they were just trying to make a name for themselves. Either way, they seemed incapable of criming their way out of a paper bag, which isn't great when you decide to take on Sydney's top dog. It's the kind of recklessness that can get a man killed. The gang showed up twice in March of 1930, but did little more than make a mess of Kate's house. On their third visit, they tried to get upstairs, certain that was where Tomlinson was hiding. They didn't get halfway up the staircase before Kate met them, rifle in hand and ready to shoot. Unflappable, Mum told the leader of the foursome, 26-year-old John Snowy Prendergast, to leave her home or she'd shoot. He didn't, so she did. It only took her one shot, right in the stomach. Kate Lee was not to be messed with, and as Snowy's terrified gang turned tail and ran, Kate watched the bleeding home invader drag himself into the alley outside. That's where police found him a short while later. Snowy was rushed to the hospital, but he didn't make it. So that's how Kate Lee ended up on trial for murder. But don't worry, she successfully argued that she'd shot in self-defense and was acquitted. However, the latest wave of bloodshed wasn't without consequences. In 1930, the New South Wales Vagrancy Amendment Act was passed, and it included even more restrictions meant to kneecap the growing underworld violence. Chief among these was the consorting clause, which basically meant that if a cop saw two known criminals chatting in the street, he or she could haul them in for, well, consorting. 
The thing is, the well-intentioned law only made it harder to police crime in Sydney, again. Sure, the clause put a stop to a lot of crimes taking place in the street, but they simply moved their dealings indoors, where consorting was much harder to spot. Sex workers left the streets in droves, heading for the relative safety of brothels, which suited Tilly Devine down to the ground. But the fight against Sydney's organized crime didn't end there. A new vice squad was created to deal specifically with sly grog, drugs, illegal gambling, prostitution, and pimping. And when the new force was unleashed onto the city's wild streets, they weren't playing games. Looking back on the time, one officer said, I don't believe in violence, but you met fire with fire. To be a good copper in Sydney around then, you had to be able to beat your weight in wildcats. And it seemed like the new squad got results pretty quickly. Early in 1930, Tilly was arrested on charges of consorting, riotous behavior, and assaulting a policeman. In court, it looked like she could be facing real time. There'd be no buying her way out of this one. But Tilly wasn't down and out just yet. No, she offered the judge a bargain. She said that if he let her off, she'd leave Sydney for two full years. Back in England, her mother was sick, and Tilly wanted to see her before she died. Knowing Tilly's reputation, the judge figured it was a pretty good idea to get her out of Australia, and agreed to the deal. So after a month of throwing herself farewell parties, Tilly kissed her husband goodbye and set sail for her homeland. Only when she went to buy her ticket, they wouldn't allow the notorious queen pin in first class. So, rich as she was, Tilly had to settle for a third-class voyage across the seas. And as they say, while the cat's away, with Tilly out of the picture, Kate Lee was excited to play. And while violence had certainly been everyone's favorite toy in recent years, Kate decided to go a different route. She tried a bit of character assassination. As I mentioned earlier, Kate and Tilly were both pretty concerned about their reputations, likely because of the cachet it gave them. Though neither of them were innocent by any stretch of the imagination, they both tried to convince everyone they were pious, law-abiding women. And Kate seemed determined to prove how good she was and how good Tilly wasn't, with just a little negative campaigning. Typically associated with political candidates, negative campaigning is the act of putting a, well, negative spin on things. Sure, Kate could have just tried to make herself look better by enticing a journalist to write a puff piece about how she gave back to her community, but perhaps she knew that people are more likely to remember the bad than the good. Researchers at the University of California, Davis, found that negative framing was much more persistent than something positive. Maybe Kate was counting on that. She called a reporter and told them, It is my educated opinion that Matilda Devine has ruined the lives of innocent young women by setting them to work in her brothels. If that wasn't a vicious enough barb to ruin Tilly's character, she added... I once loaned her a dog, and that woman never returned it. To be fair, it was nothing that most of Sydney didn't already know. Well, except for the dog part, I guess. Still, when Tilly got wind of the article all the way in London, she saw red. Fuming, she wrote a scathing letter to the editor. 
In it, among other things, Tilly accused Kate of being the greatest police informant in Sydney. Now that was a real blow. Exposing Kate as someone who regularly fed the cops information would have been devastating to her reputation, at least in the underworld. But in the meantime, Kate had other things to worry about. In June of 1930, police raided her home. When they questioned her, a small tobacco tin full of cocaine fell from Kate's skirts, like some kind of gag in a pantomime performance. Mum tried to throw the tin of snow into the fire, but she wasn't quite fast enough. The cops snatched up the incriminating evidence and soon found eight identical tins stashed around the house. In court the following month, Kate protested loudly that she was being framed. Sydney's renowned Snow Queen had never been involved in the drug trade, she insisted. But when Kate's chauffeur was arrested, he admitted that his generous boss paid him in cocaine. Kate was declared guilty and sentenced to 12 months in prison. And just like that, both of Sydney's queens, the two top dogs in organized crime, were gone. One of them across the seas, the other behind bars. Maybe now, at last, the city would have a measure of peace. Then again, maybe not. Coming up, an uneasy truce, two fading legacies, and the end of our story. Now the conclusion of the Razor Wars. By the middle of 1930, 49-year-old Kate Lee was in jail and 29-year-old Tilly Devine was quasi-exiled in London. But even though their thrones were temporarily unoccupied, each queen managed to keep their city's underbelly running just as well as they ever had. Tilly's operations were handled by her husband, Big Jim, it's not clear how much input she actually had in things while she was half a world away, but as far as we can tell, everything hummed along nicely in her absence. Kate, meanwhile, was having quite a lovely time in Long Bay Jail, thank you very much. She enjoyed certain privileges her fellow inmates didn't, making her time behind bars a relatively luxurious affair. She was assigned to work in the kitchens, but something about the idea of assigned work didn't agree with Kate. So she paid other women to do it for her. Of course, she still made the most of her kitchen access when it suited her. Like whenever the butcher's truck pulled up to the jail, she was given first choice of the cuts of meat, which she was then allowed to cook for herself. Then she dined in the officer's quarters off plates she'd brought from her own home. When she did feel like pulling her weight, Kate deigned to roll up her sleeves and bake fresh scones for everyone. The treats were so good that when the wife of the New South Wales governor tasted them, she declared them far better than those they serve me at government house. I like to imagine Kate folded her arms and gave a smug little nod when she heard that. Too right she was good, she probably thought. However, Kate's generosity only extended so far. She was a queen after all. So she used her influence to confiscate many of the best sweets and pastries the other prisoners received and ate them herself. Perhaps she shared them with her many, many visitors who were mostly her Razorhurst henchmen. They frequently stopped by to receive orders on how to keep her businesses running smoothly while mum was 
indisposed. But while Kate was luxuriating behind bars, her rival was courting trouble. You see, despite swearing she'd leave Sydney for two full years, Tilly Devine rolled back into town in January of 1931, some nine months after she'd left. But her welcome home wasn't quite as warm as she might have expected. When she arrived at her beloved Marubra cottage, she was shocked to find Jim entertaining another woman. He insisted she was just the housekeeper, but Tilly wasn't quite that gullible. She threw the interloper from her home, probably thinking that would be the end of it. But that's when Jim picked up his rifle and chased Tilly back out the front door. He shot at his wife as she ran, but luckily he missed. Still, he was charged with attempted murder. But by the time the trial rolled around, the couple had made up and Tilly refused to testify against him. Then again, it's possible Tilly's forgiveness wasn't quite so absolute. Just over a month later, 38-year-old Jim answered a knock at the front door. Whoever it was slashed him viciously across the face, then hightailed it out of there. Jim's face was sliced from his mouth to his ear, which was almost completely severed off. He got himself stitched up at the hospital, but he was left with a nasty scar. And even then, Jim refused to name his attacker. Whether he knew who it was or not, he wouldn't say a word about it to the cops. He wouldn't even tell them who drove him to the hospital. Tilly was also keeping mum about the attack, but given Jim's tendency to beat his wife and the rumors that he was stepping out on her, maybe she knew exactly who came after her husband. Hey, she might have even paid for the procedure herself, which to be clear, we can't prove, but still, it's a possibility. Then again, maybe it was one of Kate's men still seeking vengeance for past sins. However, given what we know about the way she and Tilly usually went after each other, that doesn't feel likely. Because over the next few years, the two women settled into a comfortable pattern of tit-for-tat jabs in the press. It was petty mostly, but also strategic. In addition to smearing each other, they used their publicity contacts to tip off authorities when up-and-coming gangs tried to muscle in on their turf. Mess with Kate or Tilly, and you were sure to feel their sting sooner or later. But despite their vice-like grips on the way things were, the truth is that the world was slowly changing around Kate Lee and Tilly Devine. Perhaps the biggest change came in early 1936, when William Mackay took office as New South Wales Police Commissioner. One of the first things he did was call Kate and Tilly to his office. As if they were reporting to the school principal, both women showed up on the day, eager and perhaps a little anxious to hear what the new chief mug would have to say. And to their mild surprise, it started out pretty great. Mackay told them that he knew that the bulk of their crimes, the brothels, the sly grog, were victimless affairs. As a reasonable sort of bloke, he didn't want to ruin anyone's fun, so he proposed a deal. If Kate and Tilly could run their establishments cleanly and quietly, and if they agreed to inform police about other gang activities, then things could continue as they had, meaning minimal official interference, occasional painless fines, and shorter prison terms when absolutely necessary. But Mackay warned all the other nonsense had to stop. 
the violence, the razors, the cocaine, the petty theft, it all ended then and there. If it didn't, their businesses would be shut down and they'd be invited to spend the next 20 years in Long Bay Jail. Whether they had to discuss the terms or mull things over, I don't know, but each agreed to the deal. After all, it would be much easier on them. Less competition meant less stress, and safer establishments might encourage more customers to stop by. And just like that, the war between Kate Lee and Tilly Devine came to its somewhat muted end. Not with a bang, but with a gentleman's agreement, so to speak. Sure, they were both still technically crime bosses, and sure, they definitely stepped over Mackay's lines from time to time, but for the most part, they behaved themselves. The violence mostly ended, and their war in the press fizzled out. It seems like Kate and Tilly actually developed a sense of respect for one another over the years. But don't get me wrong, it was definitely the begrudging kind, and they never really liked one another. Occasionally, they'd cross paths in the street, and there'd be some shoving, some name-calling, the sort of scuffle you can't look away from if you see it going down. But that might have been the point. These women had, at least for a time, ruled Sydney. Perhaps they just didn't want people to forget that, who they were, the power they wielded, and exactly what they were worth. Author Larry Ryder estimated that Tilly and Kate's empires were each probably worth about 250,000 pounds in the 1930s. Given that Australia changed its currency in the mid-20th century, calculating just how much that would be today is difficult, but I believe the scientific term is a truckload of money. But you might remember that at the start of this whole thing, I told you that Kate Lee died penniless. So how did a woman so indescribably successful and wealthy lose it all? Well, the short answer is slowly. Kate loved to help people. She'd pulled herself up from nothing and was always willing to help out anyone who needed a hand. If she saw a bloke sitting out in the cold with nowhere to go, she'd take him back to her home and give him a warm place to sleep. She also went out of her way to make sure that no kid in Surrey Hills went without a present from Santa. Every December, she threw a bountiful street party, lining the sidewalks with tables full of festive food, drinks, and gifts. She even arranged for a visit from old Saint Nick himself, who gave gifts to all of the kids. Given Kate's tendency for violence, her giving nature might seem out of character, but research suggests that no matter someone's criminal past or present, giving to charity is something that just feels good. In a master's thesis, Catherine Britt Hannibal found that ex-offenders reported positive effects after doing material good for others, and it outstripped the positive feelings of people who were given the chance to take action that only benefited themselves. Perhaps Charity helped assuage any guilt Kate felt over her criminal deeds, or maybe she was just a giving person. The same could be said for Tilly, who had a particular soft spot for children. On at least one occasion, she visited a children's hospital in Collaroy. She didn't give her name at the front desk, telling the receptionist that she was, quote, just a woman who loves children. Then she handed out money and toys to all of the patients. 
Of course, it wasn't just charity that depleted each woman's fortune. Over time, their empires dwindled. Sydney just wasn't the same city as the one they'd conquered. Plus, newer, younger hotshots were blowing in to grab a piece of the pie Kate and Tilly had hoarded for so long. In earlier years, they might have chased the newbies off, sending them running with the might of their goons. But both women were getting on in years by the 1940s, as were their remaining men. Maybe they thought it just wasn't worth the effort anymore. Maybe they thought they'd never run out of money. At least, that's how they acted when World War II rolled around. At a rally, Kate shelled out 10,000 pounds for war bonds and challenged the prime minister to match it. If he did, she'd double her donation. He wasn't anywhere near as wealthy as she, so he declined, much to the crowd's vocal disapproval. And while Kate was making the PM look like a cheapskate, Tilly was striking out on her own. She and Big Jim were on the outs around this time, but he still showed up to demand money from her pretty regularly. If she refused, he'd get violent. Then in 1942, he beat her in the middle of a crowded pub. Luckily, her driver was nearby and rescued her from the attack. It was the final straw, and Tilly finally divorced her no-hoper husband in 1943. But she kept his name. That was hers now. After that, the Queen's gradual decline continued. Their influence waned, as did their animosity towards one another. In 1948, someone arranged a photo op at Kate's home. She gave Tilly a few small gifts, and they embraced for the camera, looking tolerant of each other. As far as we can tell, that was perhaps the last time the two women saw each other. Tilly spent the next few years traveling abroad. Back in Sydney, what remained of Kate's business dried up. In 1955, the law banning the sale of alcohol after 6 o'clock was abolished, dealing the final blow to Kate's once thriving business. Around the same time, it came to light that she'd neglected to pay her taxes since 1941. When she was handed a bill of some 6,000 pounds, she had to confess she couldn't afford it. The government seized everything she owned properties, furs, furniture, jewels, and sold it all. So by her mid-70s, Kate Lee had nothing left. Just two decades earlier, she'd been one of Sydney's underworld elite. Now she was reduced to spending her remaining years in poverty. And Tilly? Well, I'm sorry to tell you that the wayward madam also ran afoul of the Australian Taxation Department, only her bill was £20,000, which she also couldn't pay. And like Kate, her slice of the pie had shrunk a great deal. By 1959, she had just one shabby brothel left. Still, they were both stubborn and resilient to the end. But that's the thing about the end. It comes for everything and everyone eventually. For Kate, it was in 1964. She had a stroke, slipped into a coma, and died a few days later at the age of 82. And like I said earlier, she was penniless and alone. Tilly showed up at the funeral to pay her final respects to her late and greatest rival. God rest the old bitch's soul, she said. 
As for Tilly, she didn't outlive Kate by long. In 1968, she finally shuttered her last brothel, marking her definitive retreat from the criminal world she'd once ruled so absolutely. Two years later, she also had a stroke and died at the age of 70. So what can I say about Kate Lee and Tilly Devine that I haven't already said? Well, there's a lot, actually, but I'll leave you with this. They were both women who led rich, complicated, messy, inspiring, violent, desperate lives. And though their rivalry is fascinating, it's not the most interesting part of their story. What I find so remarkable is the way that these two women from very different worlds both came to Sydney and spun gold from straw. Sure, that gold was tarnished by the nature of their acts, but we can still admire the sparkle of two women rising to the top of their fields at the same time in the same city, right? Kate built her empire alone, and while Tilly certainly had support from her husband, he was violently abusive towards her, so her triumph is all the more incredible. These two women faced down the odds, flipped them off, and stomped their way into the history books. Not a bad ending, if you ask me. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. For more information on Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, we found Underbelly, Razor, Tilly Devine, Kate Lee, and the Razor Gangs by Larry Ryder, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.